By the 1930s, forensic police work had just begun to come into its own. The late 1920s had introduced advancements that had seen investigations using more than simple fingerprint evidence to solve crime, and in America, the FBI's technical crime lab would firmly establish itself over the first half of the decade. Both in the UK and the USA, experts from outside of the police or detective agencies were routinely drafted in to help on cases, and in the UK, there were none more qualified than the professors in the medical universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow. In 1935, a grim discovery in a rural Scottish town opened a sensational case that would see the country's finest experts challenged to not only help the police to solve the murder case, but to pioneer multiple new forensic techniques along the way, creating innovative methods that would go on to be used right up to the modern day. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 4. I'm Ben, your host as always. It's good to be back. I think we can just jump straight into it this week, especially as this episode I think is a little longer. So we'll just jump straight into it and get going. This episode is called Dr. Buck Ruxton and the Jigsaw Murders. Dr. Buck Ruxton sat back in the large red velvet wingback chair surrounded by the lavish decorations of his ostentatious drawing room. Somewhat over the top, the doctor's taste in decor was a rich blend of dark hardwood veneers and deeply coloured orientalism with a host of garish touches. The ceiling above his head was painted in thick midnight blue and broken up with gold stars. He picked up the newspaper and scrolled mindlessly through the pages until he fell upon a story whose block capital headlines struck out from the densely printed page with the sharp edge of a surgical scalpel. Moffat crime. Devil's beef tub searched. Diviner offers to help police. Police activities during the weekend in connection with the Moffat Ravine crime led to no outstanding result. The search for parts of the murdered man's body extended yesterday to the Devil's beef tub, a wild valley to the north of Moffat. On Saturday, Mr Higgins, a diviner from Whitehaven, Cumberland, offered his assistance in the solution of the crime. He carried out some experiments at Gardenholm Lim and suggested to the police the direction in which he considered the murderer's car to have travelled. In Lanarkshire, the police concentrated upon tracing practically every car registered in the county and questioning the owner or driver to his movements on the night of September the 18th. Ruxton closed the paper with an uncomfortable haste and tossed it aside. Like a nervous tick, he twitched his head over to the staircase, recently stripped bare of its thick shag carpets, and made a mental note to contact a local decorator the next day. His eyes darted around from the stairs to the banisters, trying not to rest on the dark stains that spattered across the bare wood as he let out an exhausted sigh. Bukchar Chumpa Rastomji Ratanji Hakim was born in Bombay in 1899. At the time of his birth, the city was in recovery from a bubonic plague epidemic that had seen almost half a million people, around half the total population, flee to the Indian countryside whilst the disease killed over 10,000 of those that remained. Hakim's father was a doctor and his mother a French colonialist, so despite the bleak recent history of the city, he grew up in a wealthy, comfortable and protected environment. Described as an intelligent and sensitive child, he was quick to display his emotion 
and somewhat temperamental. No doubt a trait his mother and father would have expected his relatively expensive education to straighten out. He attended school until the age of 16, afterwards beginning his trajectory to follow in his father's footsteps, studying at college in Bombay and then shipping to England to study medicine at London University in 1918, just in time for the end of the First World War. After his year of study in England, he returned to India to enrol in Grant Medical School, one of the oldest medical institutes in South Asia, where he studied diligently, graduating in 1922 at the top of his year with a first-class recommendation from his tutor. Upon graduating, he enlisted in the Indian Army Service, serving in the Medic Corps as a captain both in Bombay and Dialali before serving for a year in Baghdad, Iraq. Five months before leaving for Iraq, he married Motabal Jahangarji, the young daughter of a wealthy associate of his father's, in an arranged ceremony. So far, Hakim had followed his family's wishes to the letter. He had worked hard, studied medicine in all the right schools, and now he had married the woman that they had chosen for him. But it was time for him to finally break the trend. Perhaps the marriage was the straw that broke the camel's back. At least it seems he had little desire to make any go of the situation. As shortly after he had transferred to Iraq, Hakim took 90 days leave and headed for the United Kingdom once more, where he made the decision to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. Almost as soon as he had arrived in England, he changed his name to Gabriel Hakim and enrolled in London's University College Hospital. His parents begrudgingly agreed to pay the tuition, as it at least gave them an explainable reason as to why their son appeared to have abandoned his wife. After all, explaining that Hakim was simply furthering his career at a foreign university for a short time was much more preferable than the shame of organising a divorce. The newly christened Gabrielle, however, had absolutely no intention of ever returning to India, and in 1927 he moved to Edinburgh in Scotland with all of its proud medical history to attend the prestigious Royal College of Surgeons, and whilst he continued to write to his wife regularly at first, his heart was already in a very different place. Isabella Kerr was born in Falkirk, Scotland in 1901. A far cry from Bombay, Falkirk was a small Scottish town that sat equidistant between Edinburgh and Glasgow and was a major centre in the heavy-duty machine of the Industrial Revolution's iron, steel and brick sectors. By 1920, Isabella had wound up working in Edinburgh as a cafe waitress, which is where she met Tunis Cornelius Van Ness, a Dutch merchant seaman who swept her off her feet. The pair married just days after their first meeting, though the union was equally as short and was abandoned to limbo days later when Van Ness set sail from Edinburgh never to return. The marriage had gone against Isabella's family's wishes, but had fallen pretty much in line with her impulsive and strongly independent nature. After the man of her dreams had long disappeared over the horizon, Isabella had picked herself up and returned to work in the cafe which is where she met the young Indian doctor seven years later in 1927. Gabriel Hakim had sat in a cafe every lunchtime for months, hoping to catch the waitress's eye, and it had not gone unnoticed. He was handsome, exotic, and appealed to the independent streak that ran through Isabella, and once more, she found herself head over heels for an exciting stranger. Eight years later, on the morning of Sunday the 29th of September 1935, Susan Johnson was out walking with her mother near the small market town of Moffat in Scotland. She had taken a short trip to the rural town with her family 
and had decided to take advantage of the good weather to explore a nearby ravine known as the Devil's Beef Tub, a 500-foot deep hollow carved out of the surrounding hills that had been named after a gang of Anglo-Scottish border raiders who had used the chasm to hide their stolen cattle during the 17th century. As Susan crossed over the small stone bridge at the bottom of a steep hill dotted with trees, she peered over the edge into the small stream that ran through the arch known as Gardenholm Lynn, which wound its way down to the River Annan. It was a fair drop of around 80 feet from the bridge to the water, but even at that distance, Susan's eye tracked onto a bundle of dirty white rags that were sitting nestled into the bank. She stared intently, shock coursing through her, as she noticed small strips of the wrappings had begun to drag from the bundle and wave in the flow of the shallow water, exposing what looked very much like a human hand. Gabrielle Hakim and Isabella Kerr started dating in the winter of 1927. After Isabella's hasty marriage to Van Ness, her parents weren't exactly thrilled that she had started a new relationship with another foreigner that they had deemed impulsive and reckless, but she was never going to let that influence her. On Hakim's side, what his family didn't know couldn't hurt. His letter writing to his wife did slow down significantly, but otherwise keeping her in the dark whilst she was on the other side of the world was a simple matter. The relationship between Hakim and Isabella was a happy one at first, but very quickly began to show small signs of things to come. Hakim would visit the cafe daily to watch Isabella while she worked and quietly seethe while she watched her chatting with the other male customers. His jealousy led him to suggest several times that she quit her job, but Isabella was perfectly happy and wasn't going to be told what to do. Aside from these small cracks, however, the pair enjoyed a typical courtship and got along fantastically well. Things were not going quite so well for Hakim in his academic life, however, and after struggling with the entrance exams, he now found himself on the precipice of dropping out altogether. Despite his flourishing relationship, he made the decision to leave the Royal College and head down to London to begin his career as a general practitioner alone, leaving Isabella in Scotland whilst he found a position and settled into his new life. He borrowed some cash from an Indian acquaintance in the city and found a job as a doctor's assistant, though he quickly moved on, jumping from job to job. By February of 1928, he was scraping around for money so much so that he decided to write home to India and ask his wealthy in-laws for a loan of £300, a sum that they were none too willing to hand over to their absent son-in-law. Instead, they sent him £80 and insisted that he use the money to pay for his passage back to India. Hakim had important plans for that money though, and it certainly did not include a boat ticket at least not for him, and not to India. For a long while, he had been frustrated by Isabella's marriage to Van Ness. Despite the fact that he was married himself, Isabella's marriage drove him to a jealous rage, and he planned to use the money that he had fleeced from his in-lords to pay for the legal fees to secure Isabella's divorce. Aside from his jealousy, Hakim had been motivated by a letter that he had received from Isabella whilst he was in London. She told of her plans to travel to Holland to arrange the divorce whilst he was in London and the idea had not gone down particularly well. He wrote back to her immediately, demanding that she stay put and sought the divorce from Scotland. You're a damned fool if you think of setting foot in Holland. Conclusions. I command you not to go to Holland and if you ever think of doing so, you lose me forever. I shall die of a broken heart. What's the earthly reason of your presence there? Whatever you wish to do in Edinburgh, I am prepared to stand by your side but do not go contrary to my wishes. 
Nay, I command you. I regret to have to assume such high-handedness, but I see no other way to protect you. What more do you want than my assurance and written guarantee that I am never going to be ashamed of you? Trying to get out of the frying pan, you are getting into the fire. I can never allow you to do such a silly thing. You are very cheap, and so is your lawyer. That cheap that you want to do away with your troubles for £20. You have no idea of the sleepless nights I have. I can neither read nor sleep, and your foolish adventure is the cause. In the name of God, in the name of our holy love, in the name of our prophet, I command you not to go to Holland. I will never permit you to have your own way, and afterwards be sorry for myself. My bell, suppose those scoundrels play you a trick, and you are detained in Holland. What an anxiety for us all in Britain. Funny Dutch laws, damn them all. You shall not cross British borders, if you are my dear and obedient bell. Even if you do not want to be obedient, I want you to obey me. I am shouting at you not to go there, and I am in my full temper. My love forever, promise me, with love you won't go there. Always yours, and yours only, Bommy. The letter was a good example of Hakim's swinging emotional instability, as well as his controlling and jealous nature. The fact that after receiving the letter, Isabella went to Holland anyway, only proved her strong drive for independence. This was a cycle that would continue throughout their relationship, as Hakim struggled to control his emotions and lashed out, creating a violently abusive atmosphere. Shortly after her return from Holland, Isabella moved to London to join Hakim, where both opted to change their names. Dr. Gabrielle Hakim became Dr. Buck Ruxton, hoping, no doubt, to shake off his in-laws, who had been probing for his whereabouts through the Parsi Association of England. Isabella Kerr, who had never actually used the Van S surname since her first husband had alighted across the sea, became Isabella Ruxton, though the couple never officially married. With their new names and Dr. Ruxton's new job, the couple did manage to begin to settle down, just in time for the birth of their first child, a daughter, Elizabeth Ather Stuart Ruxton, who was born in August of 1929. Shortly after, Ruxton found a surgery for sale in Lancaster, a large town and soon-to-be city with a population of around 80,000 people, just south of the Lake District, 100 miles south of the Scottish border. The practice was a three-storey terrace building situated at 2 Dalton Square in a busy area with a lot of foot traffic and central to the town's commercial and administrative district. The large block building sat directly next door to a cinema and opposite the large extravagant town hall. Both Ruxton and Isabella were pleased to be moving out of London to be closer to Isabella's family in Edinburgh, which is where Isabella headed almost immediately to take a job managing a cafe whilst Ruxton established his new practice. Over the following months, he injected himself into the local social scene, befriending all the right people and treating those less fortunate for free, earning the trust and support of the city and building up a solid clientele along the way. Throughout the city, he became known as the Raja, and his surgery developed into a fitting palace. Orientalism was still a fashionable trend in the 1920s and 30s, and Ruxton decorated the practice in extravagant style, mixing thick Asian rugs with animal skins and Egyptian antiques. French and Indian ornaments were dotted throughout, reflecting his ancestry, and gave a certain flair to the heavy dark wood of the English Chesterfields and bureaus. The walls were lined with various original paintings, including a large portrait of Isabella, that Ruxton had commissioned shortly after their move to Lancaster. By the birth of their second daughter in 1931, 
the Ruxtons were a solid feature of the local fabric. Known as a kind, charming and handsome couple, they thrived in Lancaster society, and the practice grew so that their wealth soon followed. From the outside, it would have all been very easy to assume that behind the closed doors of 2 Dalton Square, when the surgery was empty, the Ruxtons were living nothing but domestic bliss. However, the high turnaround of their newly employed domestic staff told a different story, and slowly, heavy rumours began to circulate from the lips of those that had left the doctor's employment. What started as a quirky set of traits had spiralled into a violent cycle of toxicity, as Isabella, independent and sociable as always, continuously triggered Dr Ruxton, whose jealousy continued to grow in typically horrid, controlling and abusive ways. When Isabella went out dancing, Ruxton would punish her for imagined flirtations that never took place by making her climb up and down the stairs like some sort of demented drill sergeant. At times, he would do the same by knife point, and on several occasions, he made Isabella strip naked and cower at his feet as he sat in his large, scarlet wingback chair. The atmosphere of the house blackened. Isabella grew sickly and thin, and the domestic staff frequently left, unable to stand working in such an atmosphere. Both Isabella and Dr Ruxton enjoyed gambling, however Isabella only ever had the money that the doctor allowed her, and when she lost it on a losing bet, he ridiculed her for her female naivety. Despite all their wealth earned through the practice, money was not as free-flowing as most of may have imagined, and Isabella, often dressed in shabby clothing, whilst the doctor scooted about in lavish, tailored suits. Before long, the whole situation began to weigh heavy on Isabella, who fell into a dark depression, leading her to attempt suicide on several occasions. In late 1931, while she was pregnant with their third child, she turned the gas tap on and laid down, hoping to put a stop to it all. The event triggered Ruxton to call Isabella's sister to Lancaster in the hopes that he could harangue her into talking Isabella into a better place. But when Isabella decided instead to take the children and return to Edinburgh with her sister, Ruxton found himself wielding a knife at both women and threatening to cut their throats if they left. As was typical of the doctor's swinging emotions, the following day he lamented and even drove Isabella, her sister and the children to the train station himself, happy to see her take a small break to Scotland with her family, which he hoped would help clear her head. The holiday worked to a degree, and Isabella returned refreshed, but it didn't last long, as the following spring, the pregnancy ended in a stillbirth, shortly after Isabella had taken a fall, apparently by accident, though it seems extremely doubtful that the doctor had not had a hand in it. The death of their third child sent Isabella back into a spiralling depression and Ruxton back into his temperamental, controlling and abusive manner. Isabella threatened suicide and Ruxton hid all the medication in the house, but then stirred her resentment by lamenting her low upbringing. He continued to lash out at Isabella's past, her marriage to Van S, which he still found himself unable to cope with, projecting all of his jealous rages towards Isabella. Physical violence grew between the two with Isabella fighting her own corner by tossing cups of tea at the doctor whilst he shouted at her for more imaginary transgressions. For all the resentment and toxicity, however, the bursts of violence were interspersed with moments of deep love and affection. The two wrote love letters to each other, often, and Ruxton kept a diary in which he often spoke of his love for Isabella, who he affectionately called his Belle. Meanwhile, Isabella referred to Ruxton as her dearest beloved Bommie, in July 1933, 
Their third child and first son, William Ruxton, was born, and a new nursemaid, 17-year-old Mary Jane Rogerson, a local from Lancaster who lived nearby to Dalton Square, was taken on in order to help with the new child. Mary Rogerson lived in the surgery and worked for six days of the week, returning home every Sunday to spend time with their large family. The new son was not to be much of a help to the Ruxton's difficult relationship, however, and shortly after his birth, Isabella's mother died, leading to Isabella once more trying to gas herself, this time attempting to take the children with her. Outside the monolithic walls of the surgery, though, things, as ever, appeared civil and respectable. The Ruxons made friends with a local family named the Edmondsons. Robert Edmondson, a 24-year-old solicitor, was 10 years younger than Isabella and Buck, but the two families got along swimmingly. Naturally, it didn't take long for the doctor to grow suspicious of Isabella and Robert, however, and soon he was accusing her of infidelity, cursing her for the rumours that he believed to be spreading around the town that she was having an affair with the young solicitor. Perhaps ironically, if there really were any rumours, it was only because of the doctor's spiteful accusations, which he cast out willy-nilly to several of his friends and patients. Nevertheless, the lack of evidence that anything was going on didn't seem to stop Ruxton growing increasingly paranoid, often writing in his diary of how he knew that Isabella would be out dancing alone with Edmondson and fostering an illicit relationship. He also began believing that Isabella was trying to poison him, following a night vomiting after he had drank a cup of coffee that she had prepared for him, that he believed had tasted sharp. He also believed he had overheard a conversation between Isabella and a friend where Isabella was asking what effects nitroglycerin would have had on the human body. In truth, Isabella had been scheming behind Ruxton's back, though not to kill the doctor, rather just to move back to Edinburgh and rent a flat with her sister. It seemed she was slowly getting ready to make a break from the relationship. Whatever was going on, it was clear Isabella was getting less and less keen on putting up with Ruxton's abuse, and in May of 1935, after several months of quiet, Isabella called the police on her husband. When they showed up at Dalton Square, they found Ruxton in a very excitable state and behaving like a man insane, threatening to commit two murders. Ruxton was flailing about, screaming and shouting, accusing Isabella of an affair with Robert Edmondson, who he believed had enticed away his wife's affections. It was just another example of the rollercoaster emotions now typical of the Ruxton household. A few weeks prior to the police call, the doctor had paid for Isabella to have a fancy portrait photograph taken that he could adorn his walls with. Summer came and went, and then, in September of 1935, things came to a head. Isabella had planned to visit Edinburgh in August with the Edmondsons, however the trip had fallen through, and Isabella had instead rearranged it for September. Dr Ruxton, who was by now near consumed by his suspicions that she was having an affair with Robert, chose to follow them secretly. He watched from his car as Isabella drove over and collected Robert's wife, Barbara, along with his mother and father, whilst Robert himself followed them in a second car. Tailing them all the way to Edinburgh, Ruxton saw them check into the Adelphi Hotel, a large five-storey white building perched on the edge of the Leith Links, in the docks district of the city. What Ruxton failed to see from the interior of his car was the fact that each member of the party booked separate rooms and so he drove back to Lancaster, seething at what he now saw as a brazen act of infidelity. The matter was not resolved after their return the following day, as Isabella told Ruxton that she had stayed at her sister's house, no doubt aware what her husband would infer for himself, 
in regards to the sleeping situation if she had told them that she had stayed in the same hotel as the Edmondsons. Damned, no matter what she had said, to the doctor, it was all just further evidence that Isabella was cheating on him with Robert. On Friday the 13th of September, Dr Ruxton sent Mrs Orwan, the housekeeper, home for the weekend, telling her that her services would not be needed for a few days, since Isabella was to be visiting Blackpool with her family on Saturday. Isabella set out on Saturday evening, leaving the doctor at home, along with the nursemaid, Mary Rogers, and the three children. When she returned shortly after midnight, the house was all quiet, and from the outside, it seemed like all the occupants were asleep. She parked her car and let herself into the front door, closing it behind her. As quiet as the house had seemed, however, Dr Buck Ruxton was not yet sleeping. Convinced that what she had seen sticking out the bundle of rags in the shallow water had been a human hand, Susan Johnson raced back to the hotel with her mother in tow, where she reported what she thought she had seen to her brother Alfred, who had opted out of the early morning walk. Alfred poured his sister a whiskey and then went up to the bridge to check for himself. Daring to venture a little closer to the bundle, he saw what he described as various parts of a human body. He backtracked to town and reported his findings to the police station at Moffat High Street. Once inside, he found Constable James Fairweather on duty, who wasted no time in calling Dumfries Station to request backup after hearing Alfred's panicked version of events. The pair then made their way back out to the site to meet with the Dumfries officers. Sergeant Robert Sloan made it to the scene from Dumfries at about 3.40pm and quickly began working through the bundles that had been found and taking notes on their contents. Since that morning, three more bundles had been uncovered by the stream. It was difficult to tell for sure what they were dealing with exactly, but at least two bodies were confirmed to have been found, given the fact that two heads had been discovered, one which had been wrapped in a child's romper and tied with twine. Outside of the heads, though, all they really had were a collection of disparate limbs, including a thigh bone and two arms, along with a mishmash of flesh and skin that had been wrapped in newspaper. It was immediately obvious that some form of mutilation or dissection had been carried out on the remains, but whether it was by a killer, with hopes of obscuring the identities of the victims, or the result of a medical school lecture, was yet to be determined. Though it may have seemed unlikely, the remains being dumped as a student's idea of a joke was not unprecedented, and so could not be ruled out just yet. As the darkness crept in upon the countryside, the police arranged for all the bundles to be removed to the Moffat mortuary for storage and cataloguing. The next morning saw the newspapers pounce on the discovery, dubbing the finds the Moffat Ravine Mystery. After a preliminary examination, two local doctors, Dr David Husky and Dr F.W. Pringle, had concluded that the bodies were of a woman in her early 30s and a man aged between 45 and 50. The only clue the police had to go on was that the dissections were seemingly carried out by a medical expert, and possibly more than one, due to the way that the blood had been drained and the skin removed. It was clear to all involved that more help was going to be needed, and so the police contacted Professor John Glaister of Glasgow University, the Regis Professor of Forensic Medicine, and requested his expertise. That evening, the Professor visited the bridge where the remains had been found under police escort though the journey from Glasgow had been more trying than it should have been on account of the traffic caused by the influx of tourists now flocking to the small town in the hopes of catching a glimpse of the gory crime scene. That evening also saw the expansion of the investigative team to include detectives from Glasgow CID, 
and pathologist Dr Gilbert Miller from Edinburgh University. That evening, Glaister and Miller began their own, more intense examination of the remains, which Glaister described as a black mass. All of the newspapers had been unwrapped and separated from the pieces and laid out to dry, whilst a collection of body parts mixed with debris from the riverbank sat awaiting their attention. Before they could even begin to determine any information about the victims, Glaister realised that the remains would have to be removed to the university laboratory. He made a quick inventory of everything that had been found and made the arrangements for their safe delivery. Of the four bundles recovered during the initial search, the first was wrapped in a blouse and contained two upper arms and four pieces of flesh. The second bundle comprised two thigh bones, two legs from which most flesh had been stripped, and nine pieces of flesh, all wrapped in a pillowcase. The third was a piece of cotton sheeting containing 17 portions of flesh. The fourth parcel, also wrapped in cotton sheeting, consisted of a human trunk, two legs with the feet tied with the hem of a cotton sheet, and some wisps of straw and cotton wool. In addition, other packages opened to reveal two heads, one of which was wrapped in a child romper, a quantity of cotton wool, and sections from the Daily Herald of 6th of August 1935. Two forearms with hands attached, but minus the top joints of the fingers and thumbs, and several pieces of skin and flesh. One part was wrapped in the Sunday graphic, dated 15th of September. Whoever the killer was, he'd gone to great pains to obscure the victim's identities, removing the fingertips from each hand along with most of the facial features, including ears, eyes, noses, lips, the majority of the teeth and most of the skin. What was clear was that the initial conclusion that the mutilations had been carried out by the medical professional were almost certainly true, given the fact that the bodies had been cut up with a knife rather than a saw, with each part of the body dissected at the joints and cut up, into portions convenient for transport. Realising that still more help was going to be required if they were to glean anything from the remains, Glaister and Miller agreed to contact six of the most cutting-edge minds in Scottish forensic medicine, requesting their help on the case. The police were still flailing around in the hunt for any solid clues, and though they had given presses to the newspapers suggesting that they were confident that they had some good leads, it was all a ruse in order to keep the reporters off their backs for as long as possible. One conclusion they had been able to draw was that the bodies were dumped sometime between the 16th and 18th of September due to a flood that had occurred in the stream, raising the water levels and dislodging the bundles. Any earlier than that, and the water would not have been deep enough to shift the bundles around, nor to saturate much of the remains. There was also the front page of the Sunday graphic newspaper that had been used to wrap some of the body parts. The paper had been dated on the 15th of September and though it had been ripped and torn, Detective Willie Ewing had been able to deduce that it had been a story about a carnival held that weekend in Morecambe. This was fairly curious, he thought, since the graphic was a national newspaper and the story about the Morecambe Festival was decidedly local. He caught up with some of the journalists sniffing around for a lead and questioned them about the page to see if they had any idea where it was from and some suggested that perhaps it was from a slip edition a special edition with an extra page printed and distributed locally when it was writing up a local event. Norman Ray, a News of the World crime reporter, was amongst the journalists that Ewing had consulted with about the page and he immediately recognised the importance of the question. The police went in one direction, learning from the printers that the page was indeed a slip edition and that it had been limited to only 3,700 copies. 
Of those copies, 24 had been delivered to a news agency in Lancaster named George Capstick, who gladly provided the police with his client list. Ewing had shot off in another direction entirely, asking around in Lancaster for any rumours or reports of missing people. He soon came across a rumour that was repeatedly offered up to him, that one of the doctors in the town had been missing his wife and maid for almost two weeks. He had told everyone that they were away on holiday in Edinburgh, but people were talking. There were stories of infidelity, of a violent husband, and of a well-known and respected local man who was growing increasingly temperamental by the day. The doctor's name was Buck Ruxton from the practice on 2 Dalton Square. Coincidentally, this was also one of the addresses included in the list of 24 newspaper clients that the police had retrieved from Capstick. Meanwhile, back in Dalton Square, Dr Buck Ruxton had had a busy week. After telling all of his staff that Isabella and Mary had gone to Edinburgh and not to come to work for several days, he had taken himself to tearing up all the carpet in the hallway, rolling it up and tossing it out into the rear yard. The task had been all the more difficult due to a large cut on his right hand that he had told everyone that he had suffered whilst trying to open a tin of peaches. He had torn up all the carpets in preparation for the decorators, who were coming in to repaint and replaster the staircase, but before that he would need a good clean. He had collected Mrs Hampshire, who worked for the Ruxtons as one of the domestic staff, and offered to pay her seven shillings and sixpence to clean the staircase. He also offered her the old carpets and one of his old suits, which she said she could give to her husband, but only after she had cut out and burnt Ruxton's name tags from inside. It was unsightly, he told her, for a man to have another man's suit. When she stepped inside Dalton Square, she was a little set aback by the mess of the place. Straw had been thrown around all about the floor, and on the staircase and hallway, and the carpets out back, were stained with blood, which Ruxton told her had been from the cut in his hand. None of that really explained why there was a pile of ashes that seemed to contain partially burnt items of blood-stained towels and clothing, but Mrs Hampshire got on with the cleaning regardless, enrolling the help of her husband for the job whilst the doctor got on with his daily duties of keeping his surgery running. He had managed to drop his children off with a family friend and asked them to look after them for a few days until Isabella and Mary returned. The friend gladly took the children, since everyone that knew the doctor thought he must have been struggling with all the extra chores that had been left to him with his wife and nursemaid away on holiday, as he did appear to be looking much the worse for wear since the previous weekend. Truthfully, the doctor had not been sleeping as much as he had ought to the last few days, and his appearance was suffering for it. His hand throbbed, and it looked as if it might be infected, and he was fairly sure it needed stitches. The house staff had been increasingly frustrated that he would not get it seen to properly, especially as they were the ones that had to clean the endless bloodstains from the house that seemed to have cropped up overnight, and were, they were assured, from this cut. When it became too obvious to all of the staff around him that he was failing to cope with the situation, he decided to tell them that Isabella had in fact run away with another man. The story that she had gone to Edinburgh for two weeks for a holiday was simply a cover story to avoid the shame, he said, but inevitably the truth had had to come out. At least that seemed to explain to the bemused staff why the doctor seemed so agitated recently and why he appeared to have completely stopped taking care of himself. It also partially cleared up why he had told some of them that Isabella had gone to Edinburgh and to others that she had gone away to London. Strangely, however, when Mary's brother called into the doctor's house on the 23rd of September to ask after his sister, who he had not seen recently, Ruxton told him the old story that she'd gone away to Edinburgh with Isabella for two weeks and would be back soon. 
With the Doctor's stories seemingly so full of inconsistencies, along with his rapid decline in appearance, it didn't take long for rumours to start travelling once the story broke concerning the bodies that had been discovered in the river near Moffat. Nor did it help matters for Ruxton's reputation that there had been a reporter sniffing around, asking questions about Isabella and Mary, and interviewing his patients about the couple's relationship. Concerned for his sister, Mary's brother took it upon himself to call back in the doctor's surgery and ask after Mary once more, this time backed up by his parents. The trio were welcomed into the surgery, where Dr Ruxton explained to them another truth, that Mary and Isabella had stolen £30 from his safe and disappeared. Where to? He had no clue, he told them. The story failed to satisfy the Rogers, however, who assured the doctor they would be going to the police about the matter, what with all the rumours about that the police had fished some bodies up out of the river. Ruxton assured them that they had no reason to be concerned. After all, hadn't the papers been reporting that the bodies were that of a male and a female? Back in the laboratory in Edinburgh University, Glaster now had a properly cleaned, preserved and separated selection of body parts that he had to try to fit back together. Until now, the parts, numbering over 70 individual pieces, had been separated into two boxes, with the pieces allocated to each body as best they could guess. But now they were in the lab, a more educated assembly could be attempted. Glaster's forensic team, now bolstered further by the anatomist Professor James Brash, the chair of anatomy at Edinburgh University, were pretty sure that they had been correct about the first body being a female, though now they were revising her age quite dramatically. Having laid the bodies out and placed them together piece by piece, they used x-rays and height estimations to painstakingly figure out which decomposed limb came from which body. The results were remarkably close to the initial guesses. However, the details had been wrong. Body number one was now concluded to have been the body of a young woman, around 4 foot 10 to 4 foot 11, weighing 7.5 stone and aged between 18 and 25, though Brash was fairly sure that she was 21. The second body had been more difficult owing to the fact that the trunk was still entirely missing. However, they still managed to conclude that it was the body of a second woman, dramatically changing the narrative of the story that had been printed in the papers thus far. They estimated her to have been around 5 foot 4 tall, 9 to 10 stone in weight and around 35 to 40 years old. Unknowingly, the professors had pieced together the bodies and managed to describe Isabella Ruxton and Mary Rogers almost to the dot. In Lancaster, things had continued their downward spiral for Dr Buck Ruxton. With the rumours circulating about Mary's disappearance and the presence of Norman Ray asking so many questions about the doctor, Ruxton decided to act. On the night of the 4th of October, he headed across Dalton Square to the police station to explain to the officers on duty that his wife had gone away and taken Mary Rogers with her. Waving a letter around that he said that he had sent to Isabella's sister in Edinburgh, only to have had it returned unopened as some form of proof, he grew steadily more irate as the police explained to him that they could do nothing about any rumour-mongering that was going on throughout the city. Trying, and failing, to remain calm, Ruxton told the police of how his wife had been having an affair with Robert Edmondson and of how he was concerned that the unsavoury rumours would affect his business, even going as far as to offer them the keys to his house, telling them to go over and investigate so that they could put a stop to all the chattering once and for all. Once again, the police attempted to calm down the doctor and told him they could do nothing to help with the rumours, though they suggested that he might place a wanted advert in the newspaper asking for information on his missing wife's whereabouts. 
This did manage to calm Ruxton somewhat, and he shot off a description of Isabella for the officer to write down and send off to the press for him. I am a medical practitioner, and I reside at Tulldalton Square, Lancaster. The following is a description of my wife. Name, Isabella Ruxton, 35 years, about 5 foot 5 or 5 foot 6 inches. Well built, fair hair, bridge of nose uneven. Three false teeth, left upper jaw, gold clip shows when smiling. Fair complexion, dressed in cream silk blouse, light brown small check coat and skirt, suede shoes, dark brown colour, and had a V-shaped ring on forefinger of left hand. Speaks with strong Scots accent. I would like discreet inquiries made by the police with a view to finding my wife. She left home on Sunday, the 15th of September, 1935, and I have not seen her since. Signed, B. Ruxton. He also supplied the police with the portrait photo of Isabella that they had recently had taken. The next day, both the description and the photograph were circulated to the national press, though instead of calming Ruxton's nerves, the printing of the story did quite the opposite as stories of the bodies in the ravine and the missing Isabella Ruxton were placed in such close proximity on the page. Perhaps just as concerning for the doctor was the fact that the Rogersons had also gone to the press with the story of their missing daughter, and links to Ruxton as her employer were printed just days later, along with a description of Mary. It was all slowly eroding Ruxton's sanity, as bit by bit the doctor's paranoia and fears ate away at his mental state. That weekend, he finally visited the Edmondsons to confront Robert about the suspected affair that Ruxton was sure he had been having with Isabella. As it happened, Robert was away in Edinburgh at the time, but his father noted Ruxton's clear upset and explained to him that he had also stayed in the hotel with Robert and Isabella during their trip and he could assure the doctor that everyone stayed put in their own rooms for the entire night. Ruxton left the house in tears and in a state so concerning that the next day both Robert and his father visited the surgery to attempt to properly clear up the matter once and for all. By the end of the evening, the Edmondsons left on good terms with the doctor, though Ruxton still suspected Robert and Isabella of having an affair, and he continued to scrawl as much into his diary. By that weekend, the police seemed to slowly be circling around Ruxton. All the time, he had been scooting about the city, flailing and breaking down, Confusing his stories about his missing wife, the police had quietly been collecting information on the doctor. First alerted to the situation of his missing wife and nursemaid via the Sunday graphic page found wrapped around the body parts, they had begun collecting testimony from several of the house staff, including Mrs Hampshire, who had told them all about the carpets stained thick with blood, as well as the suit that Ruxton had given to her husband and the cleaning work that they had undertaken at the house. While sniffing around, they had also uncovered a story of Ruxton hitting a bicycle rider named Bernard Beatty on the 17th of September, 20 miles north of Lancaster, in a car that he had rented for a day and a half, whilst he had put his one-month-old car in for an alarmingly early service. The doctor had not stopped after the collision, though Beatty had managed to take down his licence plate as he watched the car speeding off south towards Lancaster. Ruxton was consequently pulled over a few miles later. The doctor had appeared calm and given his name and address and agreed to produce his licence details to the police station in the following days. On the evening of 11th of October, Chief Constable Black, Inspector Henry Strath, Detective Inspector Ewing and Hammond all stepped off the train in Lancaster. They had brought with them a few of the scraps of clothing found with the body and their first port of call was to go to the Rogersons where, as they expected, Mary's mother and father were able to positively identify them as having belonged to Mary. 
Well aware that the doctor's behaviour had been erratic and unpredictable in recent days, the police fed a story to the press that no links had been found between the doctor, his missing wife and the nursemaid, and the bodies discovered near Moffat. They also decided not to approach him directly, but to instead get him to bring himself to the station. At 9.30pm on Saturday the 12th of October, they called the surgery and told Ruxton that they had information regarding Isabella and they would like him to pop into the station so that they could discuss it with him. As soon as he stepped into the office, crammed full of important-looking police officials, Ruxton must have known that something was not quite right. They spent the night questioning him on his whereabouts on the 15th of September, and to everyone's incredulity, the doctor calmly handed over an envelope with the typewritten title on the back, saying simply, My Movements. That night he told the police the same story that he had told most of the town by that point, that he had cut his hand on a tin of peaches, that Isabella had whisked Mary away to Edinburgh and that she was having an affair with Robert Edmondson. When asked about the bloodstains on his carpets, the doctor tried to evade, but no one in the room was buying it, describing his story as obviously untrue. The questioning lasted all night, but by 7am the inevitable was finally unleashed and Ruxton was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Mary Rogerson. The doctor burst into a rage, screaming to the police that he had no motive to kill anyone and shouting all the way to the cells that he was not guilty. Tying the second body to Isabella was still, as yet, an impossibility for the police, hence the arrest for only the murder of Mary. The detectives would leave the job of drawing it all together for the forensics men back in the university. The arrest of Ruxton was a local sensation and the news filled almost an entire page in the newspaper. Crowds gathered around the doctor's surgery as police spent the next day searching the premises, removing anything that could have been potential evidence, including bundles of clothing. A photographic expert from the Glasgow police, Bertie Hammond, spent the day meticulously photographing everything that he could, documenting the house as it had been left from top to bottom. Ruxton's hearing was scheduled for the following Monday, on the 14th of October, though the event was kept secret from the public. Throughout, Ruxton only repeated what he had already told the police, that he was not guilty and that he had had no motive. Following the appearance, he was removed 60 miles south to Walton Jail in Liverpool. On the police front, efforts were stepped up in the search for the missing body parts around Gardenholm Lim, in the hopes of finding the trunk to body number two and unlocking the mystery of its identity. From the very get-go, the police recognised that the case was going to need a very special effort if they were to tie the murder of Isabella to the doctor, and every forensic trick known would have to be employed. In the case that there was no trick, they would just have to create one. One of the first unusual techniques employed was the dismantling of the doctor's surgery. Firstly, a perfect scale model of the property was created from plans of the house in order to give the police a good overview of the layout before entire sections of the house were removed and taken to a laboratory in Glasgow University. The bathroom was taken almost in its entirety, as was the staircase. Since the police still needed to get around the house, a ladder was propped up in its place. Once the pieces were safely put back together for the forensic men to do their work, a true picture of the grim reality began to unfold. Over 80 bloodstains were found on the staircase alone, whilst the bathroom door appeared to have been covered. The toilet seat, hand basin, cupboard doors and the lino on the floor all showed signs of being stained by blood, as did the wood in the floorboards and the plug of the bath. From the sheer volume of blood, the police concluded that Ruxton had dismembered and drained the bodies in the bath before dragging them down the stairs to the ground floor. 
fingerprinting the house was another challenge, given the fact that the bodies had all had much of their skin and all of their fingertips removed. Body number one was somewhat useful, and partial prints were made from the fingers and palms, but the second body was proving more difficult. The task was made a little easier when one of the missing arms was found in a field nearby to the original bundles, but by the time it had been brought in, it had decomposed almost beyond recognition. When a single foot was found, the police dried it out to preserve it and then used one of Isabella's shoes to see if it fit. Though the foot did fit the shoe, it was not entirely solid evidence, and if anything, it only showed the lengths that Ruxton had gone to obscure the body's identity, as he had removed the skin where Isabella was known to have had a bunion. Casts were made of the foot all the same and put aside as evidence for the impending trial. It was flimsy, but the police decided to charge Ruxton with the murder of Isabella at the next hearing on the 5th of November. When the charge was read out in court, the doctor erupted into a fit of rage, shouting that the officials were trying to break up his happy home with their damnable lies. Back in the forensic lab, Glaister and co. had managed to confirm the cause of death for both bodies. Body number one, which they believed to be that of Mary Rogers, had died due to severe blows to the face and head, whilst body number two, that which they suspected to have been Isabella, had died from strangulation. Both had been drained of blood before they were meticulously mutilated and cut to pieces. The problem they were still having was that the missing trunk of body number two was making identification almost impossible. Bertie Hammond theorised that it may be possible, even without the outer layer of skin, to retrieve a recognisable fingerprint. He experimented with the idea by burning his own fingers and using a scalpel to remove the charred skin and confirmed that it was possible, though he had had to develop a completely new chemical concoction to achieve suitable results. A print from a single finger took him upwards of 14 hours to collect, but after he was done, for the first time ever, he was left with a set of dermal prints that he could use to cross-reference with the prints taken from the house. Professor James Brash did have another idea. The anatomist took the clean skull from body number two and suggested comparing it with photographs of Isabella to see if the skull matched the bone structure of the missing woman. It was no simple task, and a host of never-before-tried processes had to be devised in order to complete the concept with any deal of integrity. Firstly, a selection of photos were enlarged to life-size of Isabella, including the professional portrait photo that Ruxton had supplied to the police. The skull was then photographed by Detective Cecil Thomas after it had been placed in a bracket of wires which had been arranged to hold it at the exact angle as the position of the heads in the photos. For the third step, the photos themselves were recreated, sans Isabella, as their clothes were placed onto a frame to hold them in place so that the final photograph looked like some sort of outtake from the invisible man. Once all three photographs were produced to life-size scale, they were finally superimposed on top of one another to see how the features all matched. The final image suggested to the professors that the skull was almost certainly that of Isabella. The doctors had noticed that Isabella had been missing several teeth, but were not entirely sure if they had been missing before death or removed by Ruxton after. In order to learn how to differentiate between teeth that were removed before and after death, they experimented on sheep, removing them from animals before and after they had died and then they checked the bone of the jaw to see how it had healed over time. It was another unique process, but another that yielded tantalising results, as the doctors were able to conclude that it was likely that the skull had been missing the exact teeth before death that Isabella had been known to wear on a denture, as described by Ruxton himself, in the description that he had supplied to the police to give to the press. 
All of this evidence was still not the strongest, but the forensics team felt they had a pretty good case to tie the second body to Isabella Ruxton, so now they had merely to await the winter assizes and the trial of Dr Buck Ruxton. Ruxton's trial began on Monday the 2nd of March 1936 at the High Court of Justice as part of the Manchester Winter Assizes. The queues to get in started at 10.30pm the night before as people started arriving a solid 12 hours before the first sight of Ruxton himself. After the jury was sworn in, the prosecution submitted a list of over 115 witnesses and over 100 exhibits before giving their opening arguments to the court. Their central point was to prove that the bodies had been sufficiently identified as Mary and Isabella. They laboured over painting the relationship between Ruxton and Isabella as a violent, jealousy fueled nightmare, with Ruxton an abusive and temperamental husband harbouring deep suspicions that Isabella was having an affair. The bodies had been dismembered by a medical professional and Ruxton had tried his utmost to get rid of a significant quantity of bloodstains in his house. Though a lot of the evidence pinning the murder to Ruxton was for the most part circumstantial, they hoped it would seem overwhelming enough that any other verdict other than guilty would seem an impossibility. They also laid out what they believed was a series of events surrounding the murders. The suggestion of the prosecution is that her death, and that of the girl Mary, took place outside these rooms on the landing at the top of the staircase, outside the maid's bedroom, because from that point down the staircase right into the bathroom, there are trails of enormous quantities of blood. I suggest that when she went up to bed, a violent quarrel took place, that he strangled his wife and that Mary Rogerson caught him in the act, and so had to die also. Mary's skull was fractured, she had some blows on the top of the head which would render her unconscious, and then was killed by some other means, probably a knife, because of all the blood that was found down these stairs. For the defence, their opening argument focused on the lack of evidence pinning the murders to Ruxton. Even if the body were that of Isabella and Mary, they argued, how did that prove that Ruxton had anything to do with the murder? The first witnesses were called, and shortly after, the first day was over. In the days following, an endless stream of witnesses were called to give testimony, including Robert Edmondson on the second day, who confirmed to the court that he had not been having an affair with Isabella and that he had last seen her on September the 14th. He also told the court that he had parted with Ruxton on friendly terms after clearing up the matter with his father, though he did believe that Ruxton was a difficult man that was prone to flares of temper and that when he had got going, he was almost impossible to stop. The Adelphi Hotel's guest register was shown to the court shortly after that listed Isabella sleeping in her own room, quite separate from any of the Edmondsons during their trip to Edinburgh. Interestingly, despite the prosecution going to great lengths to prove that there had been no affair, the press were not entirely convinced, and whether or not they did it in order to stir the pot, several papers heavily insinuated that something more had been going on between Isabella and Robert. The fourth day saw the prison doctor who attended to Ruxton's wound on his hand give testimony stating that he could not have possibly caused the injury with a can opener, like he had told everyone, and that it was his opinion that it had been done on a knife, tossing out his own theory that if his hand had slipped on a bloody handle, it would have likely caused the injury plenty well. Eventually, the forensic experts were called in, and three full days were given to their long explanations of the great stack of evidence that they had submitted. Glaister had been warned against providing the court with all the evidence that he had, as the prosecution were concerned that the graphic detail would have been too much for a jury already suffering from hearing such a shocking case. 
elements of Glaister's case that had been sidelined included new evidence that he had recently gleaned from the maggots removed from the bodies during the initial inspection. Concerned that the defence may challenge him on the length of time that the bodies had been left tossed in the stream, he took a sample of the maggots that he had kept in a test tube to an entomologist at Glasgow University, who was able to distinguish that the maggots were of those of a blue bottle fly and that they were around 10 to 14 days into their development. This corroborated Glaister's original theory that the bodies had been dumped on the morning of Monday the 16th of September. Fortunately, Glaister was never challenged on the timings of the dumping, and therefore he could sit on this evidence without having to risk tipping any of the jury over the edge. The final day of the trial was set to be no less sensational than the rest of the case, as Dr Ruxton himself decided to take the stand in order to give his own testimony to the jury before they were asked to go out for their deliberations. It was a dramatic affair, and Ruxton began crying moments after he began answering questions about his life at Dalton Square. When asked about Isabella, he told the court that they were the kind of people who could not live with each other and could not live without each other. He explained that though they argued often, the disputes were always short-lived and the relationship was often passionate straight after. He was questioned on the events of the night of the 14th of September and he told the court that he had been in his room doing paperwork after Isabella had returned from Blackpool just after midnight. Mary, he said, had already gone to bed two hours before. When he was questioned on the suggestion that he had killed Isabella later that night, Ruxton's rage quickly flared up. That is an absolute and deliberate and fantastic story. You might just as well say the sun was rising in the west and setting in the east. When asked the same question about Mary, his reply was similar. That is absolutely bunkum, with a capital B if I may say it. Why should I kill my poor Mary? He then flowed seamlessly into his tried and tested story, that he had woken the next day to find Isabella and Mary gone and that he had cut his hand later that morning on a tin of peaches whilst preparing breakfast for the children. He ended the questioning with an outright denial that he had had any hand in the disappearance of Mary and Isabella. Mary, he said, was always regarded by him as one of his children rather than a servant. Then came the cross-examination. Ruxton was asked where the tin of peaches ended up, since none were ever recovered, and equally, where was the so-called tin opener that had damaged his hand? Ruxton had no clear answers, only stating that at the time he had been an aimless man and so he could not explain why he had thrown them away. He admitted he was quick to lose his temper, but denied ever losing control of his emotions entirely. He also admitted that he had travelled through the Devil's Beef Tub area on his way to Scotland on several occasions, but was not that familiar with the area that he knew of Gardenholm Lim, where the bodies were found. Overall, it was not a convincing effort, and on more than one occasion he had lost his temper and flared up at the questions being asked of him. After he was finished, the summaries were given and the closing remarks performed for the jury. Ruxton's defence focused entirely on the fact that they believed the prosecution had failed to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. There was doubt as to the identity of the bodies, and before that was ever to be considered, there was considerable doubt as to Ruxton having anything to do with any murder. The day concluded, and Ruxton went back to his cell in Strangeways Prison to await the 11th and final day of the proceedings, where the jury would deliver their verdicts to the court. The jurors stepped out at two minutes to four on the afternoon of Friday the 13th of October. Exactly an hour and four minutes later, they returned. The judge asked them if they had come to an agreement, which the foreman confirmed, finding Dr Buck Ruxton guilty of murder. The judge put on his black cap in order to pass the sentence. Buck Ruxton, you have been convicted on evidence which can leave me no doubt in the mind of anyone. 
the law knows but one sentence for the terrible crime which you committed. The sentence of the court upon you is that you be taken from this place to a lawful prison, and that you there be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body be afterwards buried within the precincts of the prison in which you shall have been last confined before your execution, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Ruxton made no sign of any emotion, only stared at the ceiling. He saluted the judge before being taken down to his cell to await the day of his execution. The press erupted the following day in an extravagant show of sensationalist reporting, with the news of the world in particular enjoying the fascination with the case by printing its own theories on why Ruxton had killed Isabella. The reporters that had been sniffing around Lancaster during the police investigation had managed to unearth the truth about Ruxton's marriage to a woman in India and suggested that he had killed Isabella when she had found out about the marriage and decided to do as she pleased, resenting her husband. It was all supposition on the part of the reporters involved, but it made for good reading. Ruxton appealed the guilty verdict, but it fell on deaf ears and was denied after his defence failed to convince anyone of the doctor's innocence. Mary and Isabella's remains were finally committed to the ground and Ruxton was hanged in Strangeways Prison on the 12th of May. A petition was put forward to suspend his sentence on behalf of the Ruxton children that did manage to gain over 6,000 signatories, many of which were his patients, but it earned Ruxton nothing. His body was buried in the prison grounds in an unmarked grave. Shortly after, a letter was delivered to the editor of the News of the World, which had been written by Ruxton on the day of his arrest. It had been given to a visitor to his cell on strict instructions not to hand it over to anyone until after his death. The contents were published the very next day, under the headline, Ruxton's Written Confession. It was a simple letter, but that made the contents no less shocking. Lancaster, 14th of the 10th, 35. I killed Mrs. Ruxton in a fit of temper because I thought she had been with a man. I was mad at the time. Mary Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. B. Ruxton. The Ruxton case, the ravine mystery or the jigsaw murders, as the papers like to call it, was a landmark case for forensic science. Professor Glaister and his entire team of forensic experts, along with the police work bringing together units from across Scotland, had achieved a conviction based solely on hard work, much of it entirely unique for the time, and some of it still in use today. Glaister co-authored a book based on the forensic work utilised in the case named Medico-Legal Aspects of the Ruxton Case that went on to be a prize winner in its field. The murders had been senseless in the extreme, but their gruesome nature ensured that Dr. Ruxton would enter folklore. The area around Gardenholm Lynn became known instead as Ruxton's Dump, and a schoolyard rhyme was often sung by the children in the school of Lancaster, who avoided the Ruxton home on Dalton Square. Red stains on the carpet, red stains on the knife. Oh, Dr. Buck Ruxton, you murdered your wife. Then Mary, she saw you. You thought she would tell. So Dr. Buck Ruxton, you killed her as well. So that was the story of Dr. Buck Ruxton and the Jigsaw Murders. We'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. Yes, so that was the story of the Jigsaw Murders, a case that I found quite difficult actually to research this time. When I started it, when I started uh, sort of thinking about this episode and, and looking into it and structuring it, I mainly wanted to focus on the forensic 
efforts um, and how they pioneered in, in so many different ways. Because that, for me, was really fascinating, especially the fingerprinting. Um, but as I, I did it, I started reading his diaries. And from reading his diaries, I actually sort of got caught up in his weird world. Um, because it became quite clear, like, I mean, he he was a horrible, horrible person. Um. And the diaries really made me really hate him. But I think what got me with about his diaries was how convinced he was that, she, that Isabella was having an affair. And so the, so the interesting thing is, obviously, whether or not she was having an affair, it's, it's largely irrelevant because it, it, even if she was having an affair, it certainly doesn't justify him killing her. And it doesn't justify any of the abuse against her. And you also have to think like in their relationship she was seemingly planning to uh, escape anyway and she was uh, planning to move to edinburgh with her sister and stuff like this so clearly their relationship was at an end you know she had obviously sort of uh, um, run her patients dry and and she was ready to leave potentially you know she may have been having an affair but it was really irrelevant but by reading his diaries it really started making me sort of think that it was more important for a while i sort of got sucked into thinking you know this has she had an affair you know i wonder if she has or not i don't know and it and it was mainly i say because he was just so absolutely consumed by it he he was so convinced that she had been having an affair and that she'd been doing all these things like you know uh, making a fool of him by dancing with men behind her back and all this and ironically it was probably only him that had started the rumors of all of this stuff anyway so it was just bizarre, but it but it really sucked you in. I think when you read the sort of diaries like this, they, they do tend to do that anyway because the way they're written. But yeah, it really sucked me into wondering whether or not she did have an affair. For the record, I think that possibly she did. Um, but like I say, it's, it's, it has, has absolutely no bearing on the outcome. You know, it's no justification as for killing her at all. And and really, I think. If whether or not she was having an affair, say it was completely irrelevant because he was a nasty man. And I think given his temper and, and his uh, flare of emotions constantly and his inability to seemingly control himself, I think probably the relationship was already violent. I, I think it was, I mean, it's hard to say it's a matter of time, but it feels almost like it was a matter of time, you know, like like certainly he was violent already. Um, I say he was a pretty horrible guy, um, all told. But an interesting story, I say, and the, the, the forensic side of it was, was fascinating. So the, the, the dermal fingerprinting was especially interesting, as was the uh, photographic evidence. Uh, they, were, they, they did a lot of other things as well, some of it that I mentioned in the episode. But, but for me, the photographing and the, the, the dermal fingerprint were, were fascinating. The photographs were bonkers. The way they sort of pieced them all together and then superimposed them. So you had this kind of like, to try and figure out the bone structure, it was really something... And, you know, it was, it was fascinating to see people thinking so far out of the box uh, for, for the time to try and, you know, f- effectively problem solve. Um, you know, it was it was really fascinating case because of that. But otherwise, yeah, no real mystery, nothing much to talk about. So I'll leave it there. And I say it's already been quite a long episode anyway. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to contact me, you can do so at contact.darkhistories.com is the email. You can contact me on all the social media accounts that I've got. And all of those links are in the show notes or you can find via darkhistories.com, which is the website. You'll be able to find everything on the website, including links to all of the ways that you can support if you would like to. 
You can become a patron and get ad-free episodes, uh, high-res episodes, and little uh, live streams that I do every now and then, and uh, things like that. Uh, I don't know, gosh, there's quite a lot of like backed-up years of uh, bonus stuff going on there now. So, yeah, check that out if you're interested. If not, no worries. Um, otherwise, yeah, thanks for listening. I'll be back. A little sooner than uh, the normal because uh, this episode is a little late, uh, I admit. Uh, that's due to half term last week. And uh, I, well, I'm going to blame it on the fact that I had, had to look after my nephews for a few days last week during half term. So, yes, the next episode will be uh, in just a little over a week. So, yeah, until then, take care, sleep tight.